Ivan Cummins is a biochemical engineer, author and speaker whose career specialty has been leading large worldwide teams in complex problem-solving activity. Since 2012, Iva has been intensively researching the root causes of modern chronic disease with a particular focus on cardiovascular disease, diabetes and obesity. During the pandemic, Iva has been an outspoken critic of lockdowns, the poor science behind government decision-making. He's also spoken out about the failings of corporate media and censorship. Iva recently released a feature-length doco called COVID Chronicles. Iva Cummins, thanks so much for your time. Hey, thanks a lot, Mike. Great to be here. Tell us about your background and how this has led to your work on COVID. Right. I'll do the condensed version. So I was always an ultra-technical individual since I was a kid. Engineering was a no-brainer. I did biochemical engineering. And then when I went into my corporate career, I went straight into complex problem solving, essentially. That's where I shone. So complex problems with all aspects of physics or biomedical, didn't matter what the technology was, I was like a ferret to go after and find the root causes. So I went all the way for 25 years up to relatively senior management and uh, a master technologist role. And I led problems worldwide with up to 100 engineers working on them with hundreds of millions of dollars at stake. So that was my life. In 2012, then, I got poor blood tests. I went to one, two, and then three doctors to get the answers on what they meant or how to fix them. I was shocked to find that they didn't really have good advice to give because these were standard blood tests. So I said, okay, I'm the problem solver. I'm biomedical. Um, so I went in, researched, and in a few weeks, I realized it was excessive carbohydrate was my problem and that fat in natural foods was not a problem. So I'd been doing the wrong thing for 20 years. So I fixed that. I lost around 15 kilos in eight weeks, fixed all my blood markers, and then I went out and began to lecture. And it got traction, and I lectured all over the world, um, from Israel to West Coast, East Coast America, Europe, Estonia. I've been in conferences and even the British Association of Cardiovascular Prevention in uh, UK, London, I gave a keynote address to their uh, annual conference and similar in Ireland. So I've been everywhere. I've published a book, Eat Rich, Live Long, with Dr. Jeffrey Gerber in America, who's a metabolic health specialist, MD. Uh, that's done very well. It's got 300 scientific references. And that's been my life for the last eight years, primarily metabolic health, enormous research, because I'm a monster for that stuff. And then when COVID blew up in March, my wife was worried. And I explained to her, honestly, no, I saw the Diamond Princess cruise ship data from February. I said, this is going to hit the elderly frail very hard and immunocompromised people. But it's going to be in the envelope of a severe flu and it won't touch our family. And. Um, anyway significantly don't worry and i was correct in that um but when the lockdowns came in and all the other stuff i said hold on a minute they're doing it completely wrong and i looked up the guidelines for pandemic management and the 2009 october who guidelines expressly state that once a new virus has entered a population in a significant way which it had 
Um, lockdowns, and they didn't even mention lockdowns. They said isolating exposed individuals it doesn't work. It's not recommended. And masks are not recommended. Um, but, but I saw them doing all this stuff that I clearly saw it come straight from China. And I began to wonder what's going on. And that's when I began to get involved investigating and interviewing experts around the world. And the rest is history. Uh, once you start digging into this, you can't stop because what's going on is it's literally twilight zone for the last two years almost. It goes against principles of science, which I hold dear. You, you mentioned principles of science. I mean, we're diverting off the script already. That's a, a record for me. But are there any principles left in science? It just seems to be the narrative. Since March 2020, I mean, I've dedicated my life to essentially science and truth in science and technical truth in root cause and reality. And even though I've worked in management and I've had to manipulate the message, of course, in people management, one thing I won't do is allow the technical truth to be twisted because there's something very dangerous there. It's a dangerous game to play. Now, since March 2020, my world has been shattered in a way because everything's fallen apart in science. And to give you an example of principles of science, you must always verify empirically when you do an intervention that the intervention in real world has had the required effect. That's a fundamental principle. And Karl Popper, professor of logic, basically, brought forth something people should understand, that if a hypothesis, there is negative evidence that comes out against it, the hypothesis is dead. One piece of negative evidence destroys a hypothesis. It's called the asymmetry of proof, because you can have 30 pieces of evidence supporting a hypothesis, and they never prove it. So this is a fundamental principle of science. For lockdown, as early as April 2020, we had the Woods Hole Institute in the United States published an analysis of around 50 countries and showed that lockdown did not even correlate or link to outcomes. In other words, in real-world empirical data, the degree of lockdown had no relationship to what happened in the country. Since then, we've had around 40 published papers and analyses saying the same thing. Now, you only need one analysis showing lockdown doesn't work in one region to break the hypothesis. But we have tens of publications analyzing like hundreds of regions and always the same answer. Lockdown does not link in any way to improved outcomes. The case was closed from April 2020, and now the case is shut in the lead box and sealed forever. It's over. But the people pushing lockdowns never even analyze the data. They just put them in, say they're good, and that's it. Now, that's religion. That's not science. By definition, that is ideology because it breaches all principles of science of checking the empirical data to verify the hypothesis. Mm. That's it. Look, your movie, uh, The COVID Chronicles, or um, it's more of a, uh, a doco, uh, why did you make this, this movie? What was your, I mean, I can see why on one hand, but what was your, uh, your incentive? Because an enormous amount of work went into it. Yeah, well, that actually, the genesis of that was back in around April, late April 2020. I had made a movie with a good friend of mine, Donal O'Neill, an Irish movie maker who was living in South Africa for 10 years. And he called me about what 
in God's name is going on because our new movie we were supposed to release and suddenly we couldn't because we couldn't travel, we couldn't do premieres, we couldn't do anything. And I explained to him this whole thing is nonsense and it's going to collapse with the season in Europe in the next month or two and lockdowns don't work. And he said, are you sure, Ivor? Because he thought that was, well, how come all the experts are, you know, want to do this? And I said, it's nonsense. And I told him about the Diamond Princess cruise ship and China and I explained it to him. Now, it turned out that they never let the lockdown go. But around late April, early May, we said, wow, this is the most astonishing phenomenon in our lifetime. We could actually make a movie. So we began to record ourselves and and just the idea developed. And then in December 2020, we said, this is certainly a movie we got to make. And we went on a Kickstarter and we got nearly the highest uh, Kickstarter income for the British Isles for a documentary ever on Kickstarter. I think we're neck and neck with the killings of Tony Blair, which was the highest in history on Kickstarter. And uh, we made a professional movie. We hired uh, international CGI companies to do green screen and graphics. We traveled to Switzerland, uh, South Africa, London, in Ireland. We interviewed in situ with teams. And uh, I think we've made the perfect chronicle of this extraordinary time uh, in all our lives. Look, you've been targeted, you've been targeted. Um, probably by probably the movie, but you've been targeted by mainstream media and in sort of the soft not mainstream media and social media. Tell us about this and why do you, th- I mean, again, we probably know the answer because you are you know, talking about the stuff that's not the narrative. You're talking about the truth, you know, that movie. You can't handle the truth. Sort of the same thing, isn't it? But why do you think they want to really shut you down? Is it because you're just a great storyteller and you're a, a, a soothsayer almost? Yeah, I think it's that, i give a quick example that illustrates. So I got a strike on YouTube last week and I was being very careful and I got caught out. I put up a video of uh, Dr. Peter Doshi, who's an assistant editor of the British Medical Journal out of Canada. And he's an expert in pharmacological trials and data. And he gave a five minute talk, which I thought was fine, Um, at Senator Ron Johnson's public meeting. So when I just shared that five-minute talk from such an accredited person, it didn't occur to me I was taking a risk. Well, the video was taken down, everyone who put it up, and I got a strike on my channel. So that'll give you an example. The more accredited you are, the more logical you are, the more scientific you are, and the more convincing you are, and the less debatable or challengeable you are the more you are censored, right? Mm. That's a very interesting thing. And that shows the ultra bad faith involved. Because if someone just says stuff that's misinformation, often they're let's say it, they don't matter. But if someone credentialed or authoritative or convincing who cannot be questioned on their data and will never be debated, that is not the way that science depends on debate to get to the truth. Open debate. It's crucial. It's a central pillar of science. What's happening now is the most convincing, the most credential people, like the great Barrington professors from Harvard, Oxford, and Stanford, were vilified. The more credentials, the more convincing, 
And the less you can debate someone because they are clearly telling the truth and you can't debate them because you'll be shown up, the more you censor them. And that's why I've attracted a lot of flack because my material is ruthlessly based on the data. My phrase for 30 years was show me the data, right? Don't give me your opinion, show me the data. And someone like me, they will never debate, they will never allow a platform, the only route is shut it down. Trish Wood, uh, very famous Canadian journalist and um, respected globally, uh, about six months ago we were talking about the media and how it's sort of, it's neglected its duty of care. And she said there's a massive fail of, of journalism. You tweeted recently about the government's use of journalists to collect information on fellow journalists. Tell us about this. Yeah, this is truly shocking, even within a panoply of shockingness over the last two years. So a company called Kinzen, so if you Google Gript, G-R-I-P-T space K-I-N-Z-E-N, Gript and Kinzen, Grip Media Outlet in the Ireland have been actually giving true journalism. And they covered the Kinzen story. Now, Kinsey are a bunch of ex-journalists in Ireland who are linked into the fact-checking network. And we know there's massive conflict of interest and corruption in there. But anyway, the Irish Health Service, a government body, hired Kinzen and paid them around 200,000 New Zealand dollars to literally go through the internet and trawl the internet and find anything against the government narrative. And they were sent daily reports. And there were doctors in there, there were senators, there were professors, and there were people like me, and there were other journalists. Anyone who said anything against the narrative got in the report, right? Including half factual people who are correct, and maybe half conspiracy theorists who were maybe incorrect. It didn't matter. The criteria was anything against the Irish government narrative, we want to see who they are. Kinzen also lobbied the Department of Health to hide the fact that they were doing the reporting, right? And that's covered in the GRIPT article, G-R-I-P-T. So we actually had this collusion and hiding and under the table of what I described in the last minute. Absolutely shocking. And it's all there. And Gript have released the five monthly reports, and they are truly incredible reading. They reported anyone who was against the government narrative, didn't matter who they were. So that's the kind of thing that's going on. Uh, recently, a medical expert was Facebook fact-checked, and he said, well, hold on, who did this to me? I presume they're scientists. He checked, and it was a group of fact-checkers, right, well-funded, and he went through them one by one in a video. Every single one was a journal, a journalist. They had overruled him as a PhD and a medical specialist. One of the journalists had a scientific degree way back decades ago at the start, so he allowed that. Mm. But the rest of them were just journals. Journals generally wouldn't know science if it came up and bit them because the talent for being a journal or a politician is a completely different brain uh, function talent than technical. I mean, they're different talents. 
So anyone ends up in politics or public stuff or journalism, they tend to be more a certain set of talents, right? For language or for politics, etc. They're judging technical people. <laughs> it's, it's like clown show. It's clown show with the fact checkers. Do you think, uh, speaking of uh, journalists and, and the media, a couple of things here. One, do you think it would have got this far if it didn't have the support of uh, mainstream media? And secondly, I mean, credibility is always, I was always told that your credibility is all that you have at the end of the day. Don't have that, you're, you're just nothing. So journalism, media, mainstream media, I mean, all the other organisations, but just looking at this, their credibility has been smashed. And uh, yet we have two things. And again, it's probably the propaganda bit. People still go to the uh, online or to the uh, TV news or radio news or uh, newspapers and they look at the headlines and it says COVID is a terrible thing. You know, um, you know you, you're going to all die before you reach whatever age, you know, unless you get the jab. So credibility is not there because that's a lie. Um, the, we have... Um, um, the whole kit and caboodle seems to be opening up as this massive propaganda exercise. But can you see the, the general populace, the 80% of, of the populations, actually understanding and seeing that? It's a tricky one, Mike. Uh, we have a problem. And the problem is to do with neurological circuitry, unfortunately. So it was demonstrated decades ago in, in studies that even like a month or two of sustained propaganda uh, kind of rewires people's brains. Not everyone. There's around 20% of people who are critical thinkers who resist this, but the majority, sadly, were herd animals. And what happens is essentially you start off like last summer where 50, 60, 70% were kind of questioning this. They were looking around. They couldn't really see the epidemic, but it was in the media. They weren't convinced. But over relentless propaganda... Adverts every 15 minutes on all media. The government paid for those, by the way. They paid for the propaganda. And people slowly in their brains say, okay, they can't all be wrong, so I must be wrong. And what they do is they reset their frame of reference. They take their doubts and they say, well, okay, this isn't sustainable. This is subconscious, by the way. It's not conscious thought. And they just say, look, I'm going to align with the herd, with the narrative, with the experts, because it's causing me some internal tension uh, to say all the experts are wrong. So they realign. And when they realign, they become very difficult to bring back with facts. You know, that's why you see the glazed eyes, the, the cow eyes, I call them, on people where you give them blatant facts, which shows the narrative is massively flawed. And they just kind of don't want to talk about it. And that's because they reset their frame of reference and they've made a mental decision and locked it into their neurological circuitry. And uh, this, this is a challenge. I think we depend, as we did for all of evolution, so from the witch trials in Salem, the Dutch tulip crisis, and all the other things, the collapse of communism. It requires the 10 or 15% of critical thinkers who continue to face the facts and stay rational. And eventually, the crowd that's gone insane, they recovered their sanity. But the big challenge we have this time is natural evolution of the crowd recovering its sanity 
is difficult because the machine that propagandized them is making damn sure that they don't slip back into rationality, right? Mm. I mean, because there's a doubling down now. So even if you forget what drove this madness in the first place, now everyone's invested, politicians, academics, even when they have second thoughts now, they think, well, we can't begin to admit we were wrong. So we just got to double down and keep going to wherever this thing is leading. And that's the challenge we have now. Where do you see the world heading with this endless cycle of variants, uh, which means the, the, the virus itself is just, just, it's just waiting out now. But we have passports, mm. vaccine passports, greater government control. Um, many who have studied this is, you know, are quite you know, fearful of the future because unless we can stop that, that train, uh, Piers Robertson, I asked him to, I said, look, is it a train heading towards us or is it the light at the end of the tunnel? And uh, Piers said, I think it's a train, but I'm hoping it, it will be derailed along the way in the tunnel. <laughs> so where, where do you think we're going? I mean, government, I mean, they're not undoing this ramping up. They actually, no. it's becoming almost on steroids, isn't it? Yeah, we, we are, no, that train, we, we are hurtling towards a totalitarian, essentially, technocracy, mm. uh, where the last people in the world you want holding the rudder and the reins are going to get massive control over the rudder. Um, and when they do, in the future, it's going to be very hard to get out of it. So... It's a problem. Now, the people are waking up. I, I think people are realizing, many of them, that the vaccines were a huge disappointment. I'm not going to get into the side effects. And the bottom line is the side effects are rare, but because the average age of death for COVID is around life expectancy and healthy people below 60 and certainly below 50 have risks so small, they're just, they're tiny right? They're tiny risks. Mm. That means a very small risk of a side effect matches the thing you're trying to resolve. And the vaccines quite clearly are not helping with transmission because they're non-sterilizing. So we know mechanistically before they came out, they're very unlikely to help with transmission. And the real world data shows almost no impact. So the fundamental justification for passports doesn't even exist. So that whole picture is kind of getting out. But then what do you have to do? If you have declared the vaccines to be the cavalry and that doesn't happen and it doesn't really help much, you got to double down. So the doubling down now is the new variant. Now, variants, for people to understand, and Professor Beda Stadler, the vaccine pope of Europe, uh, professor of immunology, we have in the movie, covidchroniclesmovie.com. We covered the variant topic, and he clearly states what I knew in around May 2020. Variants naturally arise on a timeline for any given virus. They're probabilistic. In other words, variant X will probably turn up around a year after the virus comes in. Now, it can turn up in Africa and in Russia at the same time. It doesn't have to spread between them. It just pops up in the natural life cycle of the virus. So everyone's talking about variants and shutting borders, but they don't understand what I just said, or they choose not to. But the variant now is being brought in as a spreading threat. And the talk is that it may bypass the vaccine effectiveness. 
Well, that's a perfect excuse for the vaccines being extremely disappointing in real-world performance, right? You can blame a new variant. You can also use the new variant to bring in more lockdowns and keep the lockdown myth alive. So the new variants are basically the perfect ploy to keep this machine running and to keep doubling down. And we won't get into the bad actors who are behind the scenes helping this machine of madness run. That's a long, complicated, conspiracy-sounding topic. But the reality is the machine of psychosis is running, and anyone who's rational looking around themselves can see that. In Ireland in 2020, the pandemic year, we had huge positivity. It spread like hell. There is no extra mortality in Ireland in 2020 versus 18. Mm. That's a fact. And the reason is we have a relatively young demographic. And as I said, younger people are not affected. Therefore, if you be younger demographic, you don't really get affected. Sweden got affected. But if you correct for their aged demographic, they had the same outcome as Ireland. And they had no lockdowns, no masks, and kids in school up to 16 all the way through. Almost no measures by modern weird standards. Uh, England has an aged demographic and dreadful metabolic health. So they got hit pretty hard. But the reality is Ireland is a great example. A youngish country spread like hell and there's no real mortality impact over normal. And 2021 is the same, pretty much. That's the reality, but no one wants to see it. Always go back to that Jack Nicholson movie. You can't handle the truth. Maybe that's part of it too. I mean, there's, we, could, we could talk forever. We haven't got forever. If somebody wants to uh, yeah. find out more about yourself uh, or catch up with your movie, The COVID Chronicles, how do they do that? Yeah, I think right now the big thing is covidchroniclesmovie.com, all one word. Mm-hmm. You won't find it too easily, I would guess, on Google. And as I mentioned earlier, within two days of release, YouTube, even though no one put it on YouTube that I'm aware of, it's already baked into YouTube's algorithms to automatically strike. Mm. So that'll tell you the power of this machine, right? But covidchroniclesmovie.com, all one word. We have independent worldwide servers because we knew there'd be a problem with censorship. And we have independent worldwide payment systems. And the trailer is there. And there's a really good tab on that website. It's Q&A. And you can see the Swedish premiere Q&A. We had doctors and a full house and we had an hour-long Q&A session that's there to watch, and we cover a lot of the facts. So that's a great resource. Mm-hmm. But covidchroniclesmovie.com, uh, it's a mainstream movie. We actually were very careful to not put in any questionable material at all. So our opponents are going to be frustrated. We have professors from Switzerland, Stanford. Uh, we have experts from London, We use experts to tell the story and we just stitch together the entertaining storyline. But by the end of the movie, no conspiracy theories. You just realize the reality of what COVID really was. You know, I've just had a call from uh, my producer to say that uh, the uh, people running the franchise of James Bond, after seeing this, they've uh, penciled you in for maybe a a part in the movie, if not James Bond, maybe just the villain. <laughs> but that's still sure. uh, that's run by Google. So I mean, yeah, obviously you are the villain. But do you yeah, win? Well, do yeah. you win? That's the question. Look, great, great chatting, fantastic. 
Uh, do it again. Uh, Ivan Cummins, thank you very much. Anytime, Mike. Good man. Good luck. The Biden administration is in a state of flux despite passing key infrastructure legislation in November. The economy is experiencing serious inflationary pressures with energy and supply chain constraints, while the Fed dithers. The administration's policies on COVID-19 remain a huge source of uncertainty, with Biden's vaccine mandates halted by the courts on constitutional grounds and its highly politicised approach to managing the virus. Blake Christian is one of America's top CPAs. Blake, thanks for joining us. And what are the forecasts for inflation and interest rates in the next six to 12 months? Well, the, uh, they just bumped the inflation um, projections for 2022 to 5.8%. Uh, previously, it had been about 55 So that, that transitory inflation that uh, the, uh, the feds were, were talking earlier in the year of uh, kind of come home to roost. And I, I think 58 is um, exceedingly low. Um, every, everything's up, gas, housing prices, rents, um, electricity, it's crazy. So I, I, I think it'll be a couple of points above that. Can you give us an update on the uh, recent port bottlenecks and the supply chain issues? And are they easing? With them being under the microscope, uh, the ports are, are definitely trying harder than they were. Um, as I've mentioned before, you know, there's there, there's huge inefficiencies in the U.S. Um, you know, goods movement mainly mainly at the port level. Um, I, I would say a lot of it's driven by you know the unions, at least in Southern California. Uh, but they are you know they are making some headway. Um, we are not 24/7, despite what the White House is saying. Um, but they, you know, I did just see one of the other, um, you know, ports, uh, uh, port um, drayage companies uh, has allowed 24-hour pickup. But you know, it's it's still a, you know, it's a fiction that that they're open 24 hours. They're they're not. The 1.2 trillion dollar infrastructure bill finally passed in November. Um, doesn't this figure already include annual funding for highways and uh, infrastructure projects? Yeah, I mean, this is an, you know, this is incremental stuff. And um, still, I, th I think only about 40% ended up being, you know, hard infrastructure uh, for transportation. And so it's, uh, it's still disappointing that uh, a higher percentage didn't really go for infrastructure. Not as I've said before, you know, I'm all for infrastructure. We have a very aging, uh, you know, roads and, and um, you know, bridges, dams, et cetera. So we could have used a lot more. And the very, very little went to, uh, to the ports, I think, uh, seven, seven billion. Or no, I'm sorry, seven, yeah, seven, seven billion, I think it was. Yeah, close to it, give or take a couple of trillion. Um, how much is now? How much is new spending, and how will this spending be paid for, though? Well, um, you know, it, it's it's always with with taxes and, and fees, um, and um, so you know, it, it, and and you know, when, when you look at these ten years later, 
which is how they score them. You know, a, you know, a ten-year window of of receipts and, and outlays. You know, they're never they're never close. They're they're always in the red because uh, costs have gone up and the tax collections end up not being uh, as robust as they think. Is Joe Biden's Build Back Better plan likely to pass the Senate with the help of the Republicans, or will it just have to wait? I, I don't think it's going to pass in its current form. Um, you know, you still have a couple of uh, outlying, it's actually more than a couple of outlying, I think, uh, Democrats, and uh, I don't think you're going to see any Republicans uh, jump the fence to, to pass it. Uh, this this Build Back Better plan is really what's referred to as the soft infrastructure bill. There's really no roads, bridges, or anything like that. It's all you know, 555 billion, uh, roughly a third of of uh, the spending relates to um, you know green energy, um, you know cleanup, etc. Um, there's a, I think it's 400 billion for um, uh, early childhood education. So this is for three to four year olds, and um, to to give them you know pre K experience. And it, to, to me, I'm, I'm sorry, but it you know on paper it looks a lot like uh, just daycare. And I don't know if there's a requirement that the you know, the parents be working. Um, so, you know, you might just have people just use it as a babysitting. Um, but for $400 billion uh, for that. Um, and then there's a lot of supplements for health care coverage for the poor, which, you know, I can, I can understand that. Uh, but mo- most of it's pretty, pretty wasteful, uh, in my mind, and and these programs, as you know, once they're on the books, they seem to never come off. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, they they all they all have a sunset provision in the in the the law, and then they say, oh, we can't we can't pull the rug out from under these people. You know, everybody's become dependent on these. We we got to keep this forever now. What are the main tax code changes in this? More of the tax hikes are, are in this provision. Um, you know, the good, the good thing is the Biden administration backed off on the capital gain tax rates and the income tax, tax marginal rate increases. And what they did is they said, let's, let's go after the ultra rich. So um, it's a pretty small group that they're going after on the individual side and they've come in up with this surtax and so if you have more than 10 million dollars of modified adjusted income um with you know roughly taxable income but they add back some other things then they drill you with a a five percent surtax so if you were already paying a million dollars they're gonna they're gonna hit you with another uh, $50,000. Mm. Um, if, if you have more than $25 million of modified taxable income, then they're going to hit you with another 3%. So, so somebody making, you know, more than 25 million, and that's a small group, but you know, they, they'll, they'll pay an extra 8% on top of their 37%, which is the highest marginal rate at the moment. Um, 
so so that was you know that was kind of a good good thing for the you know for the people below the ultra rich uh, that they won't get hit so hard mm. and then uh, but the biggest the biggest revenue raiser and and that's about 1.5 trillion compared to the 1.75 trillion of spending so there is a shortfall there uh, but the biggest um, tax paying group will be large corporations that will get hit with a 15% minimum tax. And so they're, they're going to look more at their book income, you know, what they report on their, you know, public companies and, and very large non-public companies, whatever they, uh, they report to their shareholders and things is going to be more the measure rather than taxable income. So they won't be able to take, you know, large depreciation and tax credits and things. But that's that's the single largest uh, revenue raiser, which I, I think is you know about forty percent of the one point five trillion. So it'll it'll be borne by corps, large corps. Just wondering the um, the administration, Biden administration, perhaps their consultants. I think they're called a uh, G and Associates. Um, similar, you know, take from the rich and give back to the uh, to the government, or just take the money <laughs> and just keep it for themselves. Um, it's how do you think this will affect uh, investment in the U.S., uh, employment, um, growth? Do you think that will have a major, uh, be, be a major stumbling block for all those, those things? Yeah, I mean, the, the scoring on this, and again, Congress or the, the, um, the budget office goes through, and it's, it's you know, nonpartisan group that has been doing this for decades, and uh, they, they look at, you know, line by line, you know, how much revenue it's going to increase, how much, uh, how much uh, it's going to cost over a 10-year period. And, and, you know, they usually skew a little bit towards the administration in their favor. But this showed 101,000, um, uh, and I don't know if that's an annual figure, but loss of jobs. Uh, the GDP uh, was going to drop you know, several tenths of a point. Uh, there, there was no, I, I don't recall any positive numbers. It was all negative. Mm. And that's, that's about as good as it gets because in reality, as I mentioned earlier, the, the numbers usually come out more dismal than uh, projected. What about salt? Um, can you tell us what it is and why it's so contentious amongst the Democrats? Right, well, doctors always say that too much salt in your diet is bad, but uh, in this case, uh, salt is state and local taxes. So, in the 2017 Tax Act, which again was under the um, under the Trump administration, uh, he um, his administration came up with a plan and said, "Hey, hey you know what? Um, these high tax states, you know, why should?" You know why should Middle America, who has a, maybe a five percent tax rate, be subsidizing taxpayers in California that are paying thirteen uh, percent? And how does that happen? Well, if they get a federal deduction for that large state payment, effectively that's out of the pockets of people that are in more moderately taxed states. So what they came up with is they said all taxes property tax, income tax, DMV fees for cars, 
Uh, you're going to lump all those together, and you're capped out at $10,000 per joint filer, uh, half of that for a single filer. And so, you know, high-tax states like New York, California, Illinois, um, suddenly found themselves with saying, geez, you know, I'm, I'm writing a check for $100,000 a year, 90000 of that's non-deductible. So, it, you know, it was a pretty big hit for the wealthy people in those states. And Trump's response and the administration's response was, well, you have a choice of where to live, you know. If, uh, and, and so he, he put that in there to, to kind of put pressure on those states to have more moderate tax rates. Um, so now in the Build Back Better plan, uh, they increased that deduction. And I'm sorry, I don't have it precisely, but it's either eighty or eighty-five thousand dollars is the cap now. So it's it's clearly a you know it's a um, it's a giveaway back to the you know the rich elite um, that are are in those predominantly blue states um, and. Um, now, as we've talked about earlier, you know the Democrats are not real happy with that. Uh, they, you know, even even if it is to to help some of the Democrats in those states, they don't like the idea of of that giveaway. So um, anyway, I, I I don't think that's I don't think that eighty thousand or eighty five thousand is going to stick. I think it'll come down to you know I think fifty thousand is probably uh, the right number. Uh, Thanksgiving just finished. Uh, plenty of turkeys. Um, more turkeys in Washington than perhaps in uh, on the tables. <laughs> yeah, uh, we we actually had pork this year, so uh, we uh, <laughs> we uh, we mixed it up a little bit. Now, normally we uh, have a Blake Ometer reading on uh, on Joe Biden, but because he doesn't know he's president, uh, we'll just look at the administration just quickly. Out of a rating of 10, uh, the Blakeometer for the Biden administration minus Joe Biden. You know, as a whole, um, you know, they, they're, um, you know they're, they're ineffectiveness and, you know, kind of misplaced programs with respect to, uh, to COVID, the inflation, their, you know, kind of tone deafness on a lot of social issues right now. I, I, you know, I give him about a three. It's, uh, you know, it's a uh, little bit of a little bit of a circus going on there. Scary days ahead, too. I mean, those turkeys may start running. Oh, hang on. They do run the country. Um, if somebody wants to find out more about Blake Christian, how would they do that? Easiest way is uh, just just Google Blake Christian CPA. You'll find um, my tax articles, uh, some political commentary and uh, I don't know what else you'll find, but uh, you'll find me. All sorts of interesting stuff, stuff that we all need to know. Uh, Blake Christian, <laughs> uh, uh, CPA extraordinaire, the superman of, of CPAs America-wide. Thank you very much. You're too kind. Thank you for the interview.